0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health with you, as always, joined again by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, our Director of Medicine. Chuck, how are things? Good. Well, yes, good. Things are good. (laughs) I think everyone can always elaborate on that answer when someone says, hey, how are you? And you go, I'm good. Uh, You know, anyways, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. We're both doing pretty well today. Uh, we have three stories to discuss this time instead of two, so we got a little bit of a buy two get one free situation going on here. Um, Chuck almost died last week, so we're gonna we're gonna discuss what that was like and maybe some of the implications for uh, the rest of us. Perhaps if we're in a similar situation, and then we're gonna talk about unregulated algorithms in healthcare and how that actually can affect how you're treated in a hospital, for example. And then we're gonna wrap up talking about the Cleveland Clinic. Um, publishing a very terrible article about vaping. Um, I just don't know what to say about it. Actually, I have plenty to say about it, but we'll get to that later, Chuck. So um, I I don't even know what to say here. So you almost died last week. Just take us from there. Okay. Well, so I underwent um, a surgical procedure,
1: and then three days postoperatively, having dodged COVID for two years, I got COVID. Um, and about four days after that, I uh, threw a, a clot from my leg and abdomen into my lung, a pulmonary embolism, but it was a fairly rare version of a pulmonary embolism. It's called a saddle embolus. If you go look at the article, you can see a picture of the clot because you know how guys like to brag about how big things are, but this is a pretty significant size clot. It, it covered up a great deal of the, uh, outflow, uh, of blood from the right side of my heart into my lung. And it was, it was very kind of a strange experience. We were taking the, uh, the dogs out for the evening, uh, before we all got ready to go to bed. And, um, I said, I just feel funny. And I walked up two or three steps and I said to myself, why am I so short of breath walking up two or three steps? And that was the last thing I remember for about what my wife tells me was five minutes when I awoke to find I was laying on the the deck with my wife over me and EMTs rushing in. And what she tells me is I, I just stopped breathing. Luckily, she was a trained nurse, so she gave me a few breaths, made some calls, and uh, they got me going again. Um, Saddle emboli are fairly uncommon to see in the hospital. Only about two to five percent of patients uh, with a pulmonary embolism come in with a saddle embolus. And the reason for that is most people with a saddle embolus die in the field and are not diagnosed. Um, and you know that's part of what I, I have my personally have a problem wrapping my head around because if this had happened an hour later when I was sleeping, uh, my wife would have found me dead in bed in the morning. It just would have been. Um, nobody to notice things had gone sadly awry. So that, that's, uh, that was my near death experience. And, uh, there's a certain irony in it because I'm a vascular surgeon. So I'm well acquainted with pulmonary emboli. I'm well acquainted with people that have had a saddle embolus, um, (laughs) I never thought I was going to be the one uh, to be on the other side of the uh, the desk, so to speak, with that. Um, I was rummaging around to try and find some um, science in there. I I did note one thing. Um, Rudolf Virchow, in the mid-1800s, described the three necessary components for the formation of a blood clot. An injury to the vein, which was part and parcel of any kind of surgical procedure. Uh, Hypercoagulable blood, meaning blood that's more likely to clot, which is a known side effect of COVID, and relatively slow flow in the veins, which is something that accompanies people that sit around in bed and sit around in the chairs after surgery and are are more sedentary than they might usually be. So having all three It meant that I could craft any narrative I wanted uh, to describe what had happened simply based on which one of those three factors, which are necessary but not by themselves sufficient, um, I wanted to stress. It could have been the surgery. uh, It certainly could have been the COVID. Or it could have been the laziness of the patient not choosing to move around as much as he should. And I I think that that was an important point for us all to consider, that when we look at... um, the narrative, the discussion of science-based articles, it's rarely that we have a big fight about the facts per se. It's about how those facts are connected, how we connect the dots. And, and I think this was a good example of um, being able to connect the dots in, in, in any way you wanted. I also found that it's been increasingly difficult to kind of wrap my head around what happened other than thinking of myself as one lucky person and having made a great choice uh, in terms of a wife that was a nurse uh, when we were <laughs> dating. <laughs> says that says some of the other people I dated would not have known uh, <laughs> what to do. Um, um, so, you know, it, it's 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 made me think about these um, these experiences, these near death experiences, a lot more. In, and and uh, while I didn't see the tunnel and I didn't hear harps playing, though some people would argue I'm never going to hear harps playing with <laughs> the sound of flames, um, I, I think that what was um, important uh, was how much more sharply focused my attention came to what really mattered uh, in my life, especially as we continue through the busy um, voting and what will obviously be the post-voting season. Um, I found that the most important things for me were Kith and kin. no surprise there, Um, and that the daily news, despite the way they frame it, was really um, relatively unimportant to me so I, I i i i've tried every night before i go to bed to think of things that i'm grateful for but now i have something that i can uh think of every day it's given me a i don't know if a a new lease on life but it's certainly given me a perspective and and urged me to uh get my act to get together a little bit more in terms of what i do
0: yeah well there's a lot to to dive in to that, that you just said there. But I I remember after I've never had a near death experience like you had. Um, but I remember after I got married and my wife and I moved into our our first apartment together and we're starting to build a life together. I don't know why, but I just started thinking about dying a lot. Not, not, not in a morbid way, but like, I just, it was like, man, this could just be over in a minute. You know, someone could just run through an intersection and, you know, crush me in my car. And that's all there is, you know? and i remember starting to think about wow there's this, there's a lot about this life to really value you know despite all of the the politicking and the bills and you know the hot weather you know all the stuff that that annoys me um it, it's it's interesting to put things in perspective like that um one thing i will say though is um i think you should keep to yourself that that you just seemingly fell asleep for 5 minutes cuz you could get a great book deal it could be called like heaven is an ocean and you could just tell this terrific story about you know you swam you know into the next life yes. and you I did bestseller true. man i
1: i see that but back to back to your point about um the idea of of the light just going out and and, and that's really what my experience has been i think a lot of people if they think about dying at all think about these uh, times when you're surrounded by your family and
0: yeah you know, yeah
1: in your bedroom and you have time to say this or you have time to say that but what was made eminently clear to me was that it can disappear in a moment and and, and that really gives you pause I, I i very much agree with what you would would thought you know i just it,
0: it it woke me up to some things that i should be doing differently that's all i'll say on that yeah, that's great. Well, we, we don't have to dwell on it too much, but you did make an interesting observation about, <clears throat> you know, it was your your personal habits contributed to it. Of course, you had the surgery and then there was COVID. So depending on what sort of virtue signaling you wanted to engage in, and you're not that you're not that sort, don't get me wrong, but if you wanted to, you could have said, you know, that's why you need to wear a mask because you could have, you know, you could have ended my life or, and that's why exercise is important because you, you, I thought that was interesting. So if it's not, if it's not us arguing over the facts, it's just more about the, the framing that we approach the facts with.
1: How I, do think you, it, how, I think, how think we, that's it more and more, more and more often. As I look at stuff, it, 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 we're not fighting so much about the facts. We're fighting about how we put those facts together.
0: Right. Right. So I guess what my question is, how do we get people or can we get people to do that more honestly? You know, because what what I see, and again, I'm not exempt from this being a a flawed human like everybody else. It's very easy to look at data and go, well, and it's more subtle than this, but in so many thoughts you say, well, I already think this conclusion. So how do I piece these together in such a way? You know, that's a very, strong temptation for everybody. And I see it even in people who have made their careers about promoting scientific thinking, you know, they do the same thing. So is there a way to train people or to train ourselves not to do that? That's
1: tough. I mean, cause I think part of it is subconscious. I don't even think we go, how can I put the story together? I say, I think we look at the story and unconsciously build it into to what we've already believed. So I think that you we should be humble about the certainty of our views and there's nothing um, wrong with looking at the the alternative argument made by by the opposition, whatever that might be, and trying to see its strengths you know there's a lot to be gained. Uh, when I, when I pass an article over to uh, someone that feels quite differently about it because they come back with their own strong f- feelings and show me where the weaknesses are in my argument. And I think that that's part of what we should do. So uh, to summarize, be a little bit less certain about the the strength of our opinion and at the same time be a little bit more open to seeing the
0: the correct portions uh, of our opponent's thoughts. Very good. Yeah. The, the, I think that's the old John Stuart Mill thing, right? Like, well, you bring your opinion, I'll bring my opinion, and we'll have ourselves a little a little picnic and we'll argue over the facts and then we'll, we'll straighten it out. Something like that. I guess that is really the best way to do it is just to say we're all subject to this bias. And so let's acknowledge it and then let's talk instead of, you know, fighting with each other until one of us is dead. I think that's a find the commonality and build from there. There you go. There you go. Chuck Chuck, Chuck knows what's up. Okay. So let's move on to this next story that you wrote. And I really enjoyed reading this and I didn't think I would enjoy reading an article about uh, algorithms and healthcare. But um, how could but you I not? Think,
1: I mean, it's so much.
0: It's fascinating. You know? it, it, well, and here's here's why is because when people think of how the FDA approves drugs and and medical devices, there seems to be two extremes, right? On the one hand, there's the people who think the FDA is in league with the devil, and they approve drugs because they want to kill people, or they deny drugs because they want to kill people because you know there's right, they're evil. They just have to be bad, and then on the other hand. You have the people who see any kind of federal bureaucracy as sort of like a protectors of the public. They don't have biases, and they just look at the data, and they hold everybody honest. All hail our Food and Drug Administration. But I think when I read your story, it's it's somewhere between those two extremes on the spectrum. There's some good, there's some bad, and and there's a little, I don't know how to put it, it's a little less regulated, if you will, than we like to pretend, right? It's it's not that intentional, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So Their healthcare enter- algorithms are completely unregulated. Right, right. So that would be one example. So t- talk about that a little bit. Okay, so um, Epic has developed an uh,
1: electronic health record that is used by n- the majority of physicians and health systems in the country. They really have a, a lock on it. And they have access to all of the hospital data. So they're doing a big data ploy by saying, if we take all the data and we're we're looking for a particular problem, can we come up with an algorithm that will surveil in real time information being put into the system by the physicians and by the nursing staff and identify problems? And the problem that they looked at was sepsis, which is a significant medical problem um, that oftentimes develops after you come into the hospital rather than uh, the being the cause of your admission. And sepsis um, refers to any kind of overwhelming infection, bacterial or um, viral or even fungal um, that causes you to uh, have significant cardiovascular instability, you lose your blood pressure, you lose your ability um, to oxygenate and, and, and in many cases die. When we think about all those old cases back earlier on of COVID wiping, uh, re- working its way through the nursing homes and all the people on ventilators, that's a, that's an example of sepsis of a viral cause. So there's a, there's a clear need for identifying these patients early, and Epic has the data, it has the money, it has the, the data scientists to try to develop an algorithm. So they went ahead and developed the algorithms, um, which they would then sell um, to the hospital systems as an add-on to the systems that they already bought. But in independent studies of how well the algorithm worked, They didn't work very well. Now, most artificial intelligence systems take a a set of data, which they use to train it, and it develops an algorithm that will identify, in this case, people with sepsis. The problem is is that these training sets can be very brittle, and they're not easily transported from one hospital setting to another. So what they found with the algorithm is that it missed two-thirds of the patients that the clinical staff identified as having sepsis. And while it did identify maybe 8% of patients that were missed by clinicians, it had a huge high, excuse me, had a high false positive rate so that doctors were spending a lot of time following up on alarms that were of no importance. So overall, um, the algorithm was a failure, even though um, Epic had their own internal data that showed that it worked pretty well. Now, the FDA is now moving into the area of regulating software. It, it you know, For instance, um, the detection of atrial fibrillation on an Apple Watch is something uh, that the FDA has approved of. The Apple Watch is, in that sense, a, a, a device. And they've come to the conclusion now that these algorithms developed by Epic as well as other companies are, in fact... Um, Medical devices because they're used to predict problems. Problem is, is that they're making absolutely no effort at all um, to find that these uh, devices or these algorithms actually work, and that they should be used in the field. So they're uh, allowing corporate AI to really run amok <laughs> in the healthcare system, and and this is just. Um, the tip of the iceberg that is seen by the mass media. There are many instances, and I I remember from being on the team that that brought uh, one of these electronic health records to our hospital of problems in the system and the corporations Allow the user groups to try and fix it, but they don't provide any real
0: support for fixing problems that are identified by all the hospitals. All right, so there's so much here, Chuck, that I, I it's a little bit mind boggling to be honest. So, so the first thing is that speaking, you know, about the way the FDA is handling this, they, they they've done this with a lot of areas that they have regulatory authority over, and it, I I believe it's called. Um, Regulatory discretion, or, or some something like that. But basically, even if they have authority over a, a product or or some kind of a medical procedure or whatever uh, or drug, they can say, you know, we're we are able to regulate this, but at this time we're not going to do anything about it. And that's basically what what they said here. So so it's it's fine. Right. It's not
1: even basically what they say. It's what they actually say because in, in they came out with this long guidance about what are what are medical devices to. Uh, separate out some of these algorithms. The sepsis algorithm was considered a device because it was used for uh, predictions of things. The algorithm that lies behind a pulse oximeter is not because it doesn't predict, it just displays a value. But then they write, the FDA does not intend at this time to enforce compliance with applicable device requirements. So <laughs> what, what is the value? Uh, if they're not going to enforce compliance, part of the problem is that they don't know how to enforce compliance. Uh, because this is this is this is not a this is not a, a drug that can go through testing. This is not a, uh, a surgical medical device that can be implanted and you can look at outcomes. These are um, algorithms being used by uh, a number of sites and. Uh, Basically, the, only the interested academ- academics are taking a look. And the, and the study that I, that I looked at and pulled the information from was uh, probably the first time that anybody attempted to validate uh, one of these predictive algorithms. So it's a new area for the FDA to get into. And they have really fallen down on the job from my point of view. I mean, and the other analogy that I would make for it is that this is not a surprise from a uh, bureaucratic point of view because when you think about the 737 MAX systems, um, they upgraded their software and nobody looked at it. It wasn't tested. It was released on the say-so of Boeing and
0: wound up killing 300 people. Okay. So I don't, I, I, I'm not sure how to approach this, but are, are, are hospitals required to use this technology or do they just do it because they assume it's going to help them? Or is there some incentive to use it, even if they don't know? whether There's no,
1: there's no requirement to use it. Okay. Um, They use it because they believe um, at the administrative level that it will be a um, time savings for the staff that it will enhance patient safety. But they don't do the necessary tests to prove that it works. Now, part of the marketing of this is that um, Epic will turn around to some of its larger um, customers and say, you know what? We'll give this to you for free and let you use it. Because then, then they can turn around and say, this hospital system is using our sepsis algorithm would you be interested in purchasing it so
0: <laughs> there's a lot of strange stuff going on okay so in, in, in has, the, has the fda reviewed it and said okay this is good to go or, or have they just not even reviewed it yet no they have not even reviewed it. okay
1: the at the, the point we are at is the fda has now identified uh software that falls within their Uh, purview to evaluate and approve. They have said clearly that they're not going to enforce compliance because even though they've identified the software, they don't have the expertise um, to know how to actually do that yet. Man. Uh, All right. Excuse me. And it's out there. It's, it's, that, that's why it's like that 737 max. They just, uh, Said okay, looks good to us, and out it went.
0: Yeah, it's it's really unbelievable. Um, I, I'm trying to think of like what a solution to this would look like, and what one thing that seems I don't know how practical it is, but one thing that may work is if we didn't have just an FDA, but we had FDA, but then we had other institutions with similar expertise who could look at something like this and go, okay. This is going to work under these conditions. It's not going to work, and we recommend, based on our review of it, that you use this or you don't use this. But of course, as you just pointed out, right? This is the FDA's domain, and there's uh, the way our uh, the way our system is set up. There isn't like a you know, an underwriter's laboratories that can tell you, okay, this device is safe to use in your kid's uh, bedroom or whatever, you know? no. So so what what would a solution look like? That's all I'm getting
1: at. I think the solution is that you need to have um, external validation of these systems. Um, The academics do it. You could certainly um, get the FDA to collect the same type of data that the academicians did, which was to go through the records and identify all the cases that were um, pulled by the the algorithm and compare it to the actual findings in the hospital it's work but it can be done it would be somewhat more difficult to generalize it from one system to another but at some point if we're going to have these things out there um, that's the kind of oversight that's going to be required and it it's going to take, um, expertise, time, and money, which are three things that are always tough to find with the government.
0: (laughs) Is there just a final question before we move on? Is there a possibility that their, their decisions at the FDA are being influenced by, you know, the threat of litigation or the threat that they're going to come under some sort of scrutiny? Because I know that happens in other situations with, uh, you know, for example, with uh, animal gene editing, there's farmers that say, hey, we want to we raise cows that are um, immune to certain diseases. The technology exists to breed those animals, but the FDA says, no, we regulate those like new animal drugs. And so unless you go through this rigorous Byzantine review process, you cannot raise these animals. And a lot of experts have looked at that and they've said, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're putting these rules in place because you know that you're going to get sued by some activist group. And they're going to bog you down in court, they're going to waste your budget, and you're not going to get anything done as an agency. And so that's why you're, that's why you're doing it. Are, in other words, are they afraid that Epic or some other company is going to try to sue them for, for hindering their business?
1: No, uh, that's, it's, the litigation around algorithms is fascinating. And, and, and I've written about it several years ago, talking about uh, autonomous cars and the litigation that is, that is starting to develop um, from that. The, I'm going to return to the airplane. The airplanes are the most autonomous vehicles that we have created. Airplanes are fully capable of taking off, flying, and landing without anybody in the cockpit. That's the truth of the matter. Um, the pilots are there to oversee uh, the work of the algorithm. And when you look across the broad expanse of litigation involving um, aircraft, autonomous systems, steering, GPS, the whole thing, there has never been a case where they have found against the the algorithm manufacturer. In every case, um, litigation has found that the human is responsible. Either they didn't turn the system on Or they did turn the system on. It's never the algorithm. It's always the human. And I think we're going to see the same kind of litigation uh, around some of these health algorithms. It's not going to be Epic that's being held responsible. It's going to be the doctor who didn't see this or was misled by the algorithm. The algorithm itself is going to be considered blameless.
0: You know, I think you're making the best argument I've ever heard for preventative medicine, Chuck. <laughs> Stay out of the hospital because you, I don't even, you know, you just might die because the stuff doesn't work the way it's supposed to, so eat well.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's, it's funny because I'll, I'll just say this. I was talking to a friend because I've, I've had a few operations over the last year or two, and none of the operations, and these are operations that when I was – training were considered major operations where you were in the hospital for three or four days, none of these procedures was I admitted to the hospital. They were all done as an outpatient, including the the most recent uh, one that was the proximate part of uh, my clot. And we were just kidding around saying, you know, what operation could possibly need to be done at this point where you'd have to stay in the hospital short of a heart transplant or heart surgery well we just dis- i discovered the answer if you have a blood clot that takes up most of your lungs you get to stay at the hospital but that is no bargain this is a thought
0: yeah it's <laughs> crazy man i i think I don't, I don't know i think there's a temptation to to believe that modern medicine is this life-saving enterprise and it's done all kinds of great things and therefore we can have trust that things work the way they're supposed to. And I think there's a lot of examples of that being the case, but it's not consistent as as you've been, you've been talking it, about, you know, so I think we're- there's
1: no guarantee on that. I, I right. God, God love medicine. It's life-saving. It saved my life. There's not a question in my mind about that, but sometimes it's a crapshoot. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of uh, you know things that the medical establishment gets wrong, Chuck, as, as we've as we've discussed before, there's a lot of major medical institutions that are very bad on tobacco control and on electronic cigarettes as a, a substitute, a, a low risk substitute for smoking. And uh, the Cleveland Clinic is the one I've I've most recently seen, and they published an article a couple weeks back uh, called "How Vaping or Smoking Impacts Your Physical Activity." And it's a pretty innocuous title, but but right away, they get into this idea that vaping is is not a safe alternative and it has all of these, these very serious risks associated with it. So they open it by saying, contrary to some popular beliefs, vaping isn't a safe alternative to smoking. In fact, researchers say the rise of vaping threatens five decades of progress in the fight against tobacco use. So there's so much wrong with just that sentence. But I'm I'm really curious to get your take as a physician here because there's this weird sort of animosity or animus against vaping. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that it allows people to enjoy the habit that they've developed without suffering as many consequences, or if they're just inherently skeptical of anything that's made by a tobacco company. I don't know what's going on, but, but whatever it is, it's driven them to make these really sort of absurd arguments against vaping. So one of the ones that, I highlighted here is that, on the one hand, they say nicotine is a toxic, addictive chemical. You need to do everything you can to avoid it. If you're addicted to it, you need to get off it as soon as possible. And then they turn around. And they go, one of the best ways you can do that is to use this toxic, addictive chemical <laughs> in yeah, the form of lozenges and gums and patches and um, uh, inhalers.
1: All right. right? And so, you, so you see so- that across all. You, you see this across the entire line of uh, these medical addictions that if you can find uh you know uh an opioid that doesn't have the high uh that's that's a that's a an exit ramp from the problem and i think that you know while nicotine doesn't necessarily give you a, a high in air quotes um vaping is clearly safer than inhaling hot combustion products. Okay, There's no, I don't see how we can argue that point. I, I my sense was in, in reading the whole article is that this phrase came to mind. Perfection is the enemy of good. And the people that believe that there can be no tobacco on the planet, um, believe that that's that perfection is the only acceptable standard. And that doesn't take into account the 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 wide range of our human behavior. As a physician, I, I would be happiest if you weren't using nicotine in any form but if you're going to use nicotine and i can't control that i can only kind of nudge you a little in one direction or another i would be far happier if you were um, vaping or chewing a nicotine lozenge um, than if you were inhaling and perfection is the enemy of good i'll as a physician i'll take
0: good well, especially in this case, because, and again, we're still learning about vaping as, as a smoking alternative. It's going to take years and years of research before we really conclusively understand anything about it. The way we do smoking, you know, you can say with confidence, if you smoke your entire life, your risk of lung cancer goes up significantly, but you can't really say anything like, like that with vaping yet. I mean, you can look at people who get off cigarettes and you can say, well, their health improves markedly, but they've only been on the market for about 15 years. So right. we don't have any kind of long-term correct. Period. So, so, I mean, everything looks good at this point and full disclosure, I've, I've used an electronic cigarette for years now and I've, it's kept me off tobacco. It's great. And that's why I found this article. So strange is because I go to the gym three times a week, I lift heavy weights, I run sprints and I do fine. And if, if I hadn't told my doctor that I use an electronic cigarette, she wouldn't know. She, there's nothing she could look at in my chart and go, Oh yeah, this is, you know, unless you tested me for some, um, metabolite, metabolite of, of nicotine or something, right? Then you would know. But in terms of looking at my health, there's nothing that would give it away. And so, see, I'm surprised I, that you you actually con- you
1: confess to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't you don't actually believe when the doctor says to to the individual. Do you drink alcohol? How many <laughs> drinks do you have a day? Did you get anywhere near the truth? Yeah, a couple glasses of wine, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh no, no. no! Because anything more than a glass, a glass and a half of wine, uh, you're in, you're in the alcoholic range, uh, uh, in terms of the
0: criteria that are used. So you know, <laughs> it's only when the life insurance company comes sneaking around that's when I don't know what nicotine is. Is when. <laughs> um. So, anyways, I, I guess what I'm curious about is, um, you know, it doesn't take much investigation to realize what's happening here. I mean, I, like I cited a study where they followed a bunch of 40 year old smokers who switched to electronic cigarettes. And even without trying, th- their habits improved, right? So they started to exercise a lot more and they started to eat better. So it's almost like they got rid of you know, most of the carcinogens that are in tobacco smoke and they wanted to lead healthier lives. Yes. Cleveland Clinic totally overlooked this study and they, they start they said, well, you know, when we, when we look at rodents or whatever, and we see that they're, you know, they, they have these heart palpitations when they take nicotine and people, you know, other experts have said, well, yeah, no duh. I mean, any kind of stimulant, whether it's a scary movie or a cup of coffee is going to elicit that sort of response. It doesn't mean that you're, you're in in poor health, or that you're less fit as a result of that. So I, I don't know. Do you have any insight there?
1: Well, again, I, I fall back on perfection is the enemy of good, uh, and, and that's problematic. And I think the other thing is the Cleveland Clinic. You um, know, I'm yeah. While it touts itself as the first integrated international health system, but these are the same people that have brought um, alternative medicine to the fore and are pushing that forward even though there's very little um, scientific data to support the idea that um, chanting will reduce your coronary risks
0: or something along those lines. Like chanting as in like some sort of a, you have some sort of shaman leads you through a spiritual. (laughs) Uh, Either that, I
1: mean, there's some, (laughs) if if you go back in time to the stuff that was done by Dr Ornish the the person behind the Ornish diet he was able to show regressions of coronary artery plaque if you followed his diet if you exercised as he indicated and you meditated you had to do all three and nobody does all three so you know so it's it's tough to to sell some of these holistic things when the holistic things also come with diet and exercise. it's it's not meditating it's by itself that will uh, make you better but sometimes again because the cleveland clinic is in the business of um, caring for people they've expanded their horizons into integrative medicine because that that sells and once you're you're once you're in the system and maybe you can be convinced that those coronary arteries are not really responding to the, the supplements. As,
0: uh, <laughs> a recent article shown that maybe it's time to have an angioplasty. <laughs> so the pretend stuff doesn't work. Well, let's try the real stuff and see if so, that...
1: And, and I'll tell you, so when I was a medical student, we had a bunch of electives, and one of the electives I went on was to spend a month at Cleveland Clinic because you could learn uh, tremendous about cardiology. All while you were there because they would, they would list the people that were coming in for that day and the various murmurs that the people had. So for a medical student to hear heart murmurs and things like that. It was wonderful. But the, the thing that I found most interesting about the Cleveland Clinic is that its emergency room was about 400 square feet. It was not designed to take in emergency patients. Those patients that had emergencies, they were supposed to go four blocks down to Northwestern. That's where the emergency room, the only purpose of the emergency room at Cleveland Clinic was for people flying in from out of the country that needed to be admitted to, to roll through there. The Cleveland Clinic is a, is, is a great hospital system, but it is not uh, in, a, in its basic uh, outlook designed to provide
0: healthcare to the community. Mm. That's interesting. So you think that might be influencing the sort of judgments they make about these? Oh, that- uh, absolutely. They okay. they
1: they are there to um, provide healthcare as a product, and this is one of the many ways that they can capture people uh, into the system. It, it's no different than when you talk about Cleveland Clinic's uh, outreach into Arizona and into
0: uh, Florida. You I got know, it. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I, and the reason I'm tr- asking these sorts of questions is I'm just tr- just trying to peel back the incentive structure that might be in place, you know. So, f- for example, and I don't know if this is true, but I would imagine there's some sort of financial benefit to s- to selling these um, nicotine replacement thera- therapies through your pharmacies, right? So, if you're a hospital system, you can't. <laughs> And it's like you can in England in some places, but here in the U.S., you can't say, here, I prescribe you uh, one electronic cigarette for the next month. You, you can't do that, but you can say, hey, go to the pharmacy. We've got Nicorette in stock, uh, two milligrams. Uh, let's see if this can step you down from your cigarette habit, right? So, right.
1: Oh, I, I don't know that, that that particular pharmaceutical has a, a big enough margin to, okay. to to drive the equation, but I, I think you, you've hit upon an important point. Is that vaping in the United States is not considered uh, a means of smoking reduction or cessation? Cessation, and that means if you're pulling out a prescription pad as a physician, you can't write it, and that actually is an important point. It's not you, know, you if you're not going to get. Um, the gravitas from the medical community um, for vaping that you can get for nicotine lozenges and nicotine patches, because vaping has not been approved as for smoking cessation as it has in other countries.
0: Yeah, it's a strange, <clears throat> it's a strange discussion that's going on around this. I'm curious to see how it evolves over time, but um, there you have it. If you want to vape, uh, Cleveland Clinic is not a fan. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to we're gonna leave it there for the week. Thank you all for joining us as, as always. Um, if you want to get these stories in your inbox that we talk about, just go to our website, acsh.org, and then there's a subscribe button at the top. You click on that, punch in your email address, and then three times a week, we send you these stories. So when you show up for the podcast and we start talking about the articles you've read the most, you go, hey, I know what that article is because I read it and you might get a little bit more out of the show if you do that so check it out follow us on twitter as well we're at acsh org and you can find all our stuff on twitter because we post it and we argue with people that don't like us and we answer questions so if you want to talk to us we're on twitter Uh, we will be back next week episode 27 we've done 26 of these now i'm impressed with us chuck so pat ourselves on the back and uh we will see you next time excellent take care